Welcome to another God's Story podcast, bringing us back to the gospel and the word of God. Well, God's story is the story from creation to new creation, as revealed in the Bible. But as the word of God makes clear, God's story also included the great pagan cultures of the old creation, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And uh, we see that God worked through these cultures. We see that uh, in the book of Daniel with the likes of Nebuchadnezzar, and then later with King Cyrus, uh, who's mightily used of God. And today's guest is going to show us how God worked and in fact inspired great writers and storytellers in the Greek and Roman cultures, as indeed he has inspired great writers and thinkers in our Western culture throughout the centuries. And uh, there's no one better to do this, friends, than today's guest, he's smiling at me now, Louis Marcos, a classic scholar, he's professor of English at Houston, or Houston, Houston if you're in Texas, the great, <laughs> the great state of Texas, yay! Uh, hey. hey, Houston Baptist University, where he holds the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities. And he's just published a book with Classical Academic Press called Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. And Lewis joins me from the States. Hello to you. Welcome. Hello, Brent. It is great to be back on. Great to be talking to someone who is in Middle Earth, even as we speak. <laughs> We are in uh, Earth. You're in Texas. Well, that's strong. I'm in God's country. You're in Middle Earth. So we're, you, doing, we're doing pretty well. You are in God's country, brother, and so am I. Uh, <laughs> we can have two God's well, countries. Yeah. I've now said that, you know, if you're a Christian, the first pilgrimage, of course, is to Jerusalem. But the second pilgrimage is to New Zealand, because New Zealand is not only Middle Earth. They also film Narnia there. So they, it, they, it, they, it they, is the land of fantasy. They, they did indeed. And uh, and also the, after Jerusalem, Texas, I would have thought for patriotic Texans. Anyway, why have you called your book Myth Made Fact? Uh, it is one of the best stories uh, that everybody needs to know about the biography of C.S. Lewis. Now, most people, Brent, I think they know that Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christian. Oh, right? nice. But a lot of people don't realize that he didn't go directly from atheism to Christianity. For about a year and a half, he was a theist. So first he came to believe in God, but he was holding off the belief that Jesus was the son of God. And what was holding him back? Well, what was holding him back is near and dear to my heart because I am an English professor like Lewis who loves mythology. And Lewis knew because he had read a book called The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. He knew that mythology across the world was filled with stories about a sort of God who comes to earth, who dies a violent death, and then is sort of reborn, uh, and then is reborn. And it's not a literal resurrection like we think. It's not a bodily resurrection. What it really is, is a story about the seasonal cycle of life and death and rebirth. And this character is often known as the corn king. So if you are a, a Greek, you call your corn king Adonis, or perhaps Bacchus. If you are a Persian, you call him Mithras. If you are Babylonian, you call him Tammuz. If you are Egyptian, you call him Osiris. And I'm sure amongst the Aborigines and the Maoris, there's probably some kind of story as well about this ritual seasonal cycle. And so Lewis, now, you know, uh, Fraser was a Victorian, so he wasn't able to come out and say, Jesus is just a myth. Uh, he left that for Joseph Campbell. He had no problem saying that. But still, and I'll bet like you, Brent, you're probably a big fan of Campbell and a big fan of Fraser, just as I am a, friend, a fan of Carl Jung, too, in many ways. But for most of those people who tell of that myth, 
they treat Jesus as merely a myth, nothing more than a myth, the Hebrew version of the corn king. And so that was holding Lewis back from faith in Christ. What does the death of a rabbi 2,000 years ago have to do with me? Until one day, he was with his good friend, J.R. Tolkien, a strong believing Catholic, and they were on the uh, grounds of Maudlin College, Oxford, walking along Addison's Walk. And as they walked along that tree-covered lane that I love to walk myself, they began to discuss this issue. There was another man with them named Hugo Dyson, but they began to discuss it. And Lewis, again, shared this problem he had. And that's when Tolkien changed Lewis's life by saying, Jack, his nickname, Jack, did you ever think maybe the reason that Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that became true or the myth that was made fact? And that changed within about a week, Lewis had accepted Christ as his savior. What was Tolkien telling him? Tolkien was telling him that why is it that all across the world, separated people all have this story? How could it just evolve separately all over the place? It suggests that the creator who made us all in his image put in all of us the yearning for that God who comes to us and who balances the scales and who brings life out of death. Now, here's the thing. Christians, of course, believe that Jesus, when he died and rose again, fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets. But Lewis realized that that wasn't all he did. He also fulfilled all the highest yearnings of the pagan people. For Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. He is the savior of the world. And so it makes sense that when the savior of the world comes, he will not only fulfill the Hebrew prophecies, but the best yearnings, the best dreams of the pagan people. In fact, Brent, if he did it, it would be an obstacle. If Jesus came into the world and he spoke nothing to the soul of the Gentiles, the other 99% of humanity, then it would seem as if a foreign god had invaded. But in fact, it meant that all the stories, all the greatest tales found their fulfillment and culmination in Christ. And I've called my book The Myth Made Fact because I've chosen 50 myths that I believe foreshadow Christ. Now, not every one of them foreshadows the, you know, the life, death, and rebirth. Some of them foreshadow the teachings of Jesus and the virtue of Christ. But the point is, is that in these stories, here's the real Da Vinci code. Here's the real code. In these stories is encoded the yearning and desire of the nations. Mm. So presumably God inspired these writers with some insight into the deeper truth. I believe he did. You know, in the Bible, it says, we see now dimly in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Well, maybe the pagan poets, Hesiod and Homer and Ovid and Aeschylus and Virgil and Sophocles, maybe they did, maybe they saw very dimly in a dirty mirror, but I believe they saw. I believe they were inspired, not by the direct special revelation that was only given to the biblical writers, but the general revelation that God spreads to all people through creation, through our conscience, 
through our reason. And yes, through our imagination. That's kind of scary for my fellow Baptists. But yes, through our imagination as well. Are Christians afraid of their imagination, Lewis? I think they are. And the, the trouble with this, I'll, I'll tell you a story, and I, and I tell it in my book. It's been about 10 years or so. But there was an older radio evangelist in Florida who was telling people, don't read C.S. Lewis. He's bad. He's a heretic. And I happened to be in Florida because my parents lived near Tampa. And someone asked me, can you please speak to this man? And we spoke. And this was a strong Christian, a man who led many people to Christ through his radio program. And as I expected, he, of course, had not read any C.S. Lewis. He'd read something on the web that said Lewis was a heretic. That's, that, I expected that. Here's when the light bulb went off. I said to him, well, sir, what, what have you read by Lewis? Have you read, say, the Chronicles of Narnia? And his response was, ever since I became a believer 40 years ago, I've not read a single work of fiction. He didn't even read the Left Behind series, which was probably a good thing. But anyway, now, here's the amazing thing. If I wasn't if he wasn't so old and venerable, I would have said, hey, what about the parables of Jesus? Those are fictional tales. But that wasn't my place. When I went home is when the light bulb really went off. And this is what I realized. If you ask that man, why don't you read fiction? He would say, because I'm a Christian. But I would argue that the real reason he doesn't read fiction, the reason he doesn't know himself, is that he's a modernist and doesn't know it. Ever since the Enlightenment, Brent, we have bought in, Christian and secular alike, we have bought into what is often called the Enlightenment split. Right down the middle, on one side is reason, on the other side is emotion, or reason and revelation. History versus myth, logic versus intuition, science versus myth. I mean, on and on and on. And we have accepted that absolutely phony dichotomy. These days, it's usually called the facts-value split. And we've allowed ourselves to accept that something is only true if it's true in the logical, rational, systematic way. And that's just not the way it works. We can't hold the Bible to a system of verification that's only existed for 250 years. We're in big trouble because, again, Jesus taught in parables, fictional short stories that he made up. Mm. There wasn't a real father with two real sons, uh, one of which you know took his uh, inheritance and ran off and spent it in a far country. Uh, so we, we need to get over this idea. And I'll tell you, this has hurt us now. I'm a very conservative Christian. I am very thankful for the fundamentalists who fought the good fight against Darwinism, but they made a categorical error. They decided to fight on the grounds of their opponent. They decided to buy into the 200-year-old myth that something is only true if it's systematically true in the mathematical, logical, positivistic sense. Mm. And so what happened is they decided that the Bible can only be reliable if it is, quote, scientifically right. And we ended up losing, right? As soon as we said there are no contradictions in the Bible, but we meant that in a modernist, logical, positivistic sense, we lost the fight, okay? Because one gospel says that the two thieves were making fun of Jesus, and Luke said that one said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, any Christian who understands scripture, that's not going to hurt their faith because the four Gospels are what they claim to be, four separate eyewitness accounts that complement one another. That doesn't bother anybody before the Enlightenment. But once we 
choose to fight in that, we are going to lose. We need to reclaim the full human being for Jesus appeals not just to our mind and not just to our heart, but to our imagination, to our yearnings. For as it says in Ecclesiastes, God has written eternity upon the hearts of men. And we have to be able to claim that and break from this phony dichotomy, this phony split that we've bought into. Are students in the States uh, able to study these ancient writers in the same way that past generations have done. I mean, I'm thinking in New Zealand, we've just had a debate. Uh, they, I think they tried to remove classical studies from the, the <sighs> curriculum. And there was a there was an outcry from this from the teachers. But what's happening with this in the States? Are, this, are students actually able to read Sophocles in school? Yes, but the fight is raging. Okay, I mean, if you go online in the States, you will find out uh, there are teachers who are celebrating the fact that they've thrown the Odyssey out of the canon. Yeah, I read Unbelievable. that. I read that. You probably read about that. Yeah. Now, it, it's not as well. widespread as that, but it's coming in. It's coming in, you know, they, this, this idea of, you know, coming up with a new core that does away with the Western tradition. Uh, it, it's dangerous. Now, here is proof, if we need it, that God has a sense of humor. You know, it says in the Bible, Jesus wept. It never actually says Jesus laughed. Um, but I believe he has a sense of humor, and this is why. In the States right now, the pagan classics, the greatest advocates of them who are helping to preserve them and to pass them down to the next generation are the classical or the Christian conservative Christian homeschoolers and classical schools. They're called classical Christian schools. And I work with them more than anybody else. I love them. I speak for them all. My, both of my kids now teach for classical schools. These are the people who used to be sort of Bible only people. And now they're realizing the rich heritage. And they, it's just like that wonderful book called How the Irish Saved Civilization, where Thomas Cahill showed that the pagan classics were preserved by Irish monks out in the middle of nowhere. Yes. The least likely, it's kind of like Bilbo and Frodo, the least likely person imaginable is called to do the great deed of saving civilization mm. and it's crazy now I don't, I don't is this true in new zealand and australia yes. because right now because we're all fellow colonials right now in america we actually take the magna carta even more seriously than the brits do because yes. we it's, it's, and i'm guessing it's probably true down under too we understand that no i mean when, when we fought for our independence we said we're not french revolutionaries buddy we are you okay we are just arguing the same thing that your wig said, and we believe in the Magna Carta, and we just want to embrace that. That's why our revolutions did not turn into horror like France and China and Russia, because we weren't a revolutionaries overthrowing everything. We were true radicals. A radical is someone who goes to the radix, which is Latin for root, like the word radish. We went back to the root and and, you know, we, we listened to, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Edmund, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Edmund Burke, uh, who wrote Reflections of the Revolution of France, and we learned how to do it right. And so we are trying to preserve these things. We understand that it is only the classical Christian canon that, that, um, that what's been passed down to it. That tradition is the only thing that allows us to have rational, logical debate.
if we throw it out, we cannot really communicate with one another. I don't know about down where you are down there, but here we've got people who are actually claiming now that reason and logic are somehow white things, oh, elements absolutely. of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, You're hearing it too. This is, yeah. this is really terrifying. Yeah, it is it's, terrifying. it's unbelievable. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, so, so, so the, uh, but, but it, it, it's not going yet. We, we are fighting. There still is a love. I think it's because there's a deep love for story and we need to get back and tell the best stories. We, 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 you know, we, we can do that with our fairy tales. We can do it with our myths. We have to stop allowing them to poison and fracture our fairy tales and take them back because we have the best story. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, the end of the seventh happiness. That was a six mm-hmm. happiness uh, with yeah, Ingrid Bergman. Yes, uh, right, the true story of Gladys Alward, something like that her name was. Yep. Uh, and there's a wonderful thing where the, the Chinese Christian says, just tell them stories. They yeah. love stories. They love stories. Come in, you tell them. They will come. I remember that moment. I remember that moment in the movie. Yeah, it's a fantastic. You remember that? Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's really funny because the Chinese guy starts mixing up, I think, Moses and Noah or no. something. But it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, yeah, it's a good no. story. So we dive in there. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, we, 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 we need to do it, right? I mean, here's the funny thing right now. It is the Christian missionaries, right? See, if, if you're an evangelical like me, we don't have saints, but we actually do have saints. They're called Wycliffe Bible translators. Those are our saints. And what are those people doing? They are saving languages. They're saving cultures. The, the, the liberal progressives are the ones that are coming in and destroying cultures by imposing upon them the, the progressive uh, sexual revolution, all the things Africa does not want. And they're the ones that are the cultural uh, appropriators. We are trying to reach out and build bridges and draw people in. And I think the myths are a way of doing that. Uh, and I'm hoping that there are Chinese people in China that will do this with the myths of China and the teachings of Confucius and other things. Because if, in fact, Jesus is the savior of the world, we should see bits and pieces of light all around, though only in Christ will we find the fullness and completion of truth. Mm. Well, what was the importance of story and storytelling in the ancient world? Oh, well, I mean, this, this is the way until again, very recently, this is how you pass down virtue to your children. This is how you taught the proper way to behave. You taught them, how do you know who the hero is and who the villain is? What does it mean to be live? What does it mean to do your duty? All of these things are best conveyed by story. In the States, we had a book called The uh, the Book of Virtues uh, by Bill Bennett, who was the uh, uh, Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan. Uh, and the funny thing about his book was it was quite revolutionary. But if he had written it 300 years ago, people would have said, well, duh, of course, that's how you do it. But because we've forgotten, we need to be reminded. I tell you, the best way to teach your son the importance of honesty is to tell him the story of the boy who cried wolf. You have that story down there? Oh, yes, yeah, we've got the same yep. name. And, yep. and, and that's it. I mean, that terrified my poor son. He kept trying it. And but he remembered it. I remember that when I was told I was that story. That, when I was yeah, a kid. We, we were all taught that in New Zealand. Well, I was certainly taught that when I was a kid. Good. It, it, it's it's important because we need to understand uh, how these things were. I, I wrote another book called On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis, where I looked at Narnia and I looked at Middle Earth stories. And I, I compared them. I brought them together, show how they teach us, how they embody the virtues. This this book isn't specifically the seven virtues, but how do virtues get passed down? How do warnings get passed down? Much of the Bible is narrative. 
Much of the Bible is literary and it's passed down to us. We are people of the book, but we are also people of the stories, of the sacred narrative. They call that the meta narrative, the overarching narrative into which all other stories fit. And so that, that, that's how, and again, Jesus teaches using parables. Now, there's also another reason. He also taught in parables so that only those who have eyes to see will see, and only those who have ears to hear will hear. So sometimes the stories are there, so they will only be understood by those who have yielded to God. So sometimes there's a little bit of a secret element. We're not talking about a culting group here, but there is a slightly secretive element so that you won't cast your pearls before swine. But again, those who have ears to hear and eyes to see will hear and see. Yeah, so how do these, well, let's get on to some specifics. I want to, we're going to look at the myth of Orpheus, for example. It's Orpheus, Orpheus and Eurydice, which most, well, many of us know from opera and from Greek myth. Exactly. And other, it's all over the place in Western culture, isn't it? How does, how does the myth of Orpheus point to Christ? Well, should we begin by reading it? I'd love you to read it. We okay. should say, we should say that you've written you've rewritten these myths, these stories yourself, haven't you? In in this book, right? Yeah, well, and they're what I've done is they're beautifully written. Oh, thank you. I, I love storytelling. You know, back to Edith Hamilton and Bullfinch and all of them. That storytelling is where it's at, and people have lost that. Like you know, the great historians, you know, somebody like uh, Winston Churchill, they were also great storytellers. What was her name? Barbara. Barbara. Uh, what was that last name? Uh, the Distant Mirror. And it's out of my head. Um, Tuckman, Barbara Tuckman. You know, these, these old historians knew how to tell a story and bring history to life. But most of the modern historians have all come out of Marxism and stuff like that. And they're all about, uh, you know, studying social history. And, and, and they, they, there's no story. Left, okay. So what I did is there's 50 chapters. And each chapter, the beginning, I retell the myth in my own words. And I, and I always put at the end, the best telling of the myth, if you want to kind of look it up, but I've, I've kind of put it in my own words. Then I have an interpretation of the myth in which I look for deeper meanings and Christological meanings. And then uh, I have a series of notes that kind of together give historical background, biographical background, further study. And then I have a whole series of questions. And these are questions that go from simple to third graders all the way up to adults uh, that will, and they're not yes and no questions. They're questions that will help you explore these myths and, and, and also lots and lots of Bible references and things like that. Uh, so here is my retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice. Yes, please. Orpheus was not only the king of Thrace. He was the greatest musician in the world has ever known. When he played on his lyre, creatures were calmed. The tallest trees would bend and sway to the music and the dumb rocks themselves would leap and dance with joy. His was a song of life and growth and fruition. One day, his playing drew a lovely nymph named Eurydice out of the bark of a tree, for she was a dryad, one of the wood spirits that haunted the forests in ancient times. The two fell in love and were married in the spring. But their honeymoon was not to last for long. A venomous serpent hiding in the grass bit the ankle of unsuspecting Eurydice. A moment later, she was dead, and her soul, grieving, descended to Hades. Orpheus mourned her for many days, but he refused to accept that her death was final. For a full year, 
he wandered the earth in search of the pitiless bronze doorway to the underworld. In the end, he found that most desolate of spots and passed unalarmed down the endless stairway to Hades. Though the moaning of the spirits of the dead caused Orpheus's face to grow pale with fear, he pressed on bravely until he stood before Hades himself, the lord of the underworld. He begged the dread king to give him back his Eurydice, but Hades refused. It was then that Orpheus lifted his lyre and began to play an enchanting tune. As he played, he sang a song of love of its promised bliss and its overwhelming power. For had Hades himself not been impelled by his love to kidnap Persephone and take her as his bride? With each stroke of the strings, the atmosphere of Hades altered and changed. The spirit's moaning subsided and the perpetual fog lifted. The furies, who had never known pity, began to weep and beat their breasts in response Sisyphus, condemned forever to roll a boulder up a hill, only to have it roll back each time he reached the summit, ceased his endless labor and climbed up on his rock. There he sat, his chin resting on his fist, and stared at Orpheus in wonder. Hades the heartless, the unmovable, rose from his throne and granted the musician's request. Orpheus could lead his beloved Eurydice back up the stairs to the world of light and life, but on one condition, he must not look back at his bride until she had ascended the last stair. For most of that long, slow ascent, Orpheus kept his eyes fixed before him, yearning for the light. But as he neared the top of the staircase, he was seized by fear and doubt, thinking that perhaps Hades had fooled him and Eurydice was not behind him. What harm would it do to take a quick glance? Alas, Orpheus, that glance was fatal. Even as you reached out your hand to your beloved, a cold wind blew her down, down into the darkness. Mm. Wow. Plenty of parallels with the Lord Jesus Christ there, I suspect. Indeed, indeed. He who, and, okay, remember, now, this is one of those things that, is still slightly debated, but the very tradition, it's even in the Apostles' Creed, the oldest of the creeds, it says that between the crucifixion, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, the resurrection, Jesus performed what is often known as the harrowing of hell. Jesus went down to hell. He broke open the gates of hell. He went into limbo, and there he rescued the righteous people of the Old Testament who were waiting for their salvation. And in the many, many icons of this, always we see Jesus all in white, stepping in the doors, beneath the doors are, are chains representing the deeper part of hell. He's reaching out his hands, either one way or together, to grab Adam and Eve, and around him we can recognize David and Solomon and Moses and Abraham and all of them, and even John the Baptist, the, the last of the ones to die before Christ, uh, and he takes them up. So he broke down the gates. That's why Dante and Virgil have no problem entering into hell, because the gates of hell have been ripped off their hinges and can never be put back. Uh, and so Jesus is our true Orpheus. And you want to know something? The oldest art that we know of in Christianity is found on the tombs of the catacombs. 
where the Christians buried their dead. You can still visit them in Rome. And on the tombs is the oldest painting that we have, you know, preserved because it's sort of underground there and dry. And there are many images of Jesus painted with a liar as if ah, he were Orpheus. Yeah. Beautiful. It's interesting, isn't it? They're beautiful. Yeah. Calling back the dead. We even but get a serpent. See, we even get a serpent in that story, don't we? Exactly. That's right. That's right. Hmm. Eurydice was uh, killed by a serpent to her heel. Now, watch how two. Ah, now that's significant. Right? That's significant. Right. It, it, really, it, does, it does say her heel, right? So one, we have the serpent in the garden who tempted Eve, who ate of the apple and brought death into the world. But also we remember the proto-evangelium. The first gospel message is during the, the curses that Jesus puts on the snake and, and Adam and Eve, there is also a blessing. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The serpent seed will bite his heel, but he will crush his head. Right. And Satan, the serpent, bit Jesus's heel when he convinced humanity to crucify him up on the cross. But through the very power of the cross, Jesus crushed the head. I grew up Greek Orthodox and we sing a chant at Easter. Christ is risen from the dead by death, trampling upon death. And to those in the tombs, he granted life, though it sounds better in the Greek because in the Greek it says by death, death. Tramp. You can do that in Greek and Latin syntax better than you can do in English, unless you're unless you're building or somebody. Uh, by death, death tramp. Right, but here there's also a difference, right? Because the Christ of Greek mythology, Orpheus, is a foolish savior. He looks back, and he loses his beloved. Mm, so it doesn't. But our savior, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our savior doesn't look back. He and and in, you know what? In a lot of those icons of the uh, harrowing of hell, Jesus is holding the hand of Adam and Eve, but often he's actually holding their wrist. Right? If you just hold my hand, I could let go. But if you got my wrist, you've got me. Right? And so, Orpheus. And then, like I said, the early church understood that because they depicted Jesus as just as the famous image we always see of Jesus, the good shepherd with the lamb or sheep over his shoulder. That was based on images of, of, of Apollo uh, that could be seen back then. Even more amazing, maybe we'll talk about it, uh, the image of the Pieta, the most famous, of course, by Michelangelo. Uh, that image comes from Venus holding the dead Adonis, one of the corn kings, and weeping over his demise. And that image gave us the image of the Pieta of Mary weeping for Jesus. Well, uh, it is it is amazing. We could talk we could talk on and on about this, but we are as always uh, sadly running out of time on this part uh, of computer. But look, before, I've got to ask you about the house of Atreus. I can't, uh, I, can't, I, can't, I, can't <laughs> I can't let you go without asking you about the house of Atreus. Man, what a dysfunctional outfit that was. Oh my gosh, you know, uh, soap operas and novellas have nothing over this. This is oh. this is unbelievable. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to see. Uh, well, I say your man, the Australian. Uh, what's his name? Oh, uh, Peter, who... Peter, Peter Jackson. Oh, Peter... that's right. Yeah. Well, that's Peter Jackson. Well, that's yeah. I, mean, Lord Lord of the Rings or I was also thinking of uh, of the, the guy that did the Romeo and Juliet. What's his name? Uh, Strictly Ballroom and, and oh, uh, um, yes, Australia. Can... Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, he's got a weird name. Uh, you know, let, 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 let's turn it. Yeah, put together with Peter Jackson. Baz yeah, Luhrmann. Two of them together. Baz Luhrmann, yeah. Peter Jackson. Let's just put together and tell the story of Atreus because it is a it is a story you do not want to be a part of. And the story of Atreus begins almost with a fairy tale with a son of Zeus named 
Tantalus. He is the titular head of the House of Atreus. And Tantalus was the most blessed person who ever lived. For the gods often invited him to Mount Olympus to taste of the ambrosia that only the gods are allowed to taste. And one time, even more amazingly, the gods deigned to come to his palace. It was in modern-day Turkey. To come down to his palace and sup with him. And then, and there no reason is given. It's as crazy as Adam and Eve eating of the apple when God gave them everything. For some reason, perhaps he envied the immortality of the gods. Tantalus did something terrible. He grabbed his son, Pelops. He killed him. He cut him up and cooked him into the food and offered it to the gods. Now, luckily, the gods in their wisdom knew what had happened. They pushed aside the meal and then reassembled Pelops. But that wasn't where they stopped. Certainly, Tantalus deserved a punishment to fit this most taboo of crimes. They took Tantalus and put him deep in Tartarus. That is the deep part of hell where there are active punishments. And they put him in a room and gave him nothing to eat or drink. And above him hung luscious grapes from the vine. But every time he reached up to pluck the grapes, a wind blew them away. Beneath him was a crystal clear fountain of water. But every time he reached down to drink, it opened up and the water was drained out. You might guess that from tantalus comes our English word to tantalize. Mm. Well, Pelops learned his lesson. And he eventually moved to Greece, and that's where the Peloponnese, which is the southern part of Greece, is named for Pelops. And he eventually moved to the city of Mycenae. And there, even though he led a pretty righteous life, he fathered uh, two sons, Atreus and Thyestes, who mm. would carry down the evil in the blood, right? The, the blood guilt, as we call it. And what happened was that one day, Thyestes seduced the wife of his brother Atreus and had an affair with him. When Atreus found out, he decided to follow the old motto, I don't get mad, I get even. And he decided to treat his brother Thyestes in good, uh, you know, home fashion. And so what he did is he invited his brother Thyestes to dinner. While he was coming, he seized Thyestes' children, he killed them, he butchered them, he put them in the food, and fed it to Thyestes. Unfortunately, Thyestes, not being God, did not know, and he ate of the forbidden meal. That is when Atreus opened up the uh, covered dish and showed the skulls and hands of his children. Thyestes vomited forth a meal and went into exile, taking with him his one remaining son, Aegisthus, swearing perpetual vengeance against Atreus and his house. Well, somehow Atreus did not have to pay for his villainy. But again, the blood guilt passed down to the next generation. His sons, these names better known now, Agamemnon and Menelaus. Menelaus is the one who won the hand of Helen of Troy. But as we know, Paris stole away Helen and took her back to Troy, which is actually in Turkey, oh, uh, where they originally did came from. Trouble? Did that cause trouble? It caused a great deal of trouble, right? And so a war was called. 
Now, you would have expected Menelaus to be the commander-in-chief, but because his brother was the actual king of Mycenae and had 100 ships, the most of the ships, he was chosen as the leader, and off they went for 10 years to fight the Trojan War. Now, that's the story in Homer, but there's a story told in Aeschylus that would have been known to Homer, that before the ships actually made it to Troy to begin the endless war, they were washed ashore on the Greek port of Aulis. And no matter how hard they tried to leave and sail to Troy, the winds would not let them leave. Eventually, they realized this must be something divine. And so they called the Greek soothsayer, his name is Calchas, and asked him to speak to the gods. And he said, I have terrible news. Agamemnon, you have done something to bring upon the anger of Artemis, Diana in Latin, and she has decreed that if you want to go to Troy and gain glory, you must sacrifice your youngest daughter, Iphigenia. Mm. Now, he could have refused and gone back home, but lusting for glory, he called, he sent a messenger back home to Mycenae and said, my dear wife, her name was Clytemnestra, and she was, by the way, the half-sister of Helen, my wife, Clytemnestra, I have good news. The noble Achilles has said he wants to marry our daughter, Iphigenia, put her in her wedding gown and send her post-haste to Aulis, where they will be married before the ships leave for Troy. And so they sent her, and poor innocent Iphigenia walked down the aisle in her dress. But when she got back, there was no bridegroom waiting for her, only her father with a pitiless knife. He sacrificed his daughter, and then off he went for 10 years. Imagine Clytemnestra the wife as the news trickled back that this horrible deed had been done. And it was then that Agistus, the son of Thyestes, who had been raised on wrath and vengeance, saw his chance. He came to Mycenae. He seduced Clytemnestra, and the two became lovers. And when Agamemnon returned, his wife Clytemnestra stabbed him to death in the bath. And then she and her husband became king and queen of Mycenae. Now it might have ended there, but Agamemnon and Clytemnestra had also another daughter named Electra and a son named Orestes. Now Orestes had been sent to relatives for safety, but when he came of age, Orestes returned to Mycenae, and with the help of his sister Electra, he killed Agistus and also killed his own mother. And when that happened, he brought down further blood guilt, and the Furies chased him down to seek vengeance. Now, do you see how basically every taboo possible has gathered itself around the house of Atreus? What is to be done? Now, when uh, Orestes killed his mother, he was doing it under the order of Apollo, who told him that it was up to him to avenge his father's murder. And what happened was the Furies chased Orestes all over Greece until he came to Athens. And there, Orestes, because he was being helped by Athena, patron goddess of Athens, and also by Apollo, 
Orestes was put on trial for his guilt. And I will tell you, as it's told by Aeschylus in the Oresteia, a trilogy of plays, something that is actually on the order of Shakespeare. In some ways, Athena, to do this, put together what you might call the first Supreme Court of the Western world. She chose a group of Athenian elders to judge the case. The, the, the judgment was split, and so Athena herself broke the tie by ruling in favor of Orestes. Now, that worked. Orestes left. It looked like everything was going to be happy, but the Furies were Furies. The Furies represented the old eye for an eye vengeance, the vendetta that never ends. And they told Athena, we will bring plague on your city and death. But Athena, now civilized, said to the Furies, no, listen to me. Do not destroy this city. I invite you to come and live in this city, to be patron goddesses of marriage and of childbirth. And so they gave up their wrath. And this is the story of how vengeance and vendetta gave way to true justice. It is one of the most important stories in Western literature. And if we lose that story, we're in trouble. <laughs> and the need to atone for all that blood guilt, which is very biblical. Yeah, yeah. Notice, and, you know, and, and I should say that that on the way to Athens, or uh, 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 Orestes suffered greatly. In other words, he he did have to do all sorts of penance, but in the end, he was given grace. So there, there, there is. You're right. We, we can't just brush it away. Blood guilt is real and needs to be taken care of. And again, of course, in the Christian story, it is Christ who gives his blood as the ransom. C.S. Lewis was really into that ransom idea, who gave his blood as the ransom, but also, of course, bore our punishment upon himself. Uh, and in this story, we, we have that, and it's a generational story that, that, that we, we need to move towards. It. Otherwise, it goes on forever. Now, of course, we, we should say, because we, you know, sometimes people accuse the, the, the Old Testament of being eye for an eye vengeance. We need to understand that a better way to translate that is no more than an eye for an eye. I mean, when God says eye for an eye, he's saying, if someone takes your eye, you don't kill him, right? In other words, it's, it's, it's meant to put a, a limit upon vengeance and vendettas. Still, though, we do as we move from law to grace, from, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, from Moses came the law, from Jesus came grace and truth. From the word came grace and truth, as the prologue to John's gospel tells us. So there, there is a movement of one to the other. And it's amazing how the pagan poet and the pagan audience understood this need for atonement, but also a need for what we would call as Christians, a once for all atonement. Otherwise, it goes on forever. There is no end to the vengeance. And really, what Aeschylus is doing is not only giving us a cycle of humans, he's giving us a cycle of gods. Because in the same way that the vendetta ends on the human scale, it ends on the divine scale as Athena, the goddess of civilization, together with Apollo, is reconciled with the old, phonic, earthy deities uh, that, that always are thirsty for blood. 
Mm. And all of these, of course, all of us pointing towards the Savior who was to come. Did, did final question because we've we've got to wrap up, Lewis. It's been fantastic. Did would Aeschylus have read the Old Testament? There's, I just don't see any way of that. Now, I, I, I have suggested that maybe Virgil, okay, because by the time we get to Virgil, the Old Testament has been translated into Greek. And so it is theoretically possible that Virgil might have had access. Though I don't see any direct proof. What I see, see, okay, what we need to understand, maybe I need to make this clear. When I'm seeing a link between a Greek myth and Christianity, I'm not saying that somehow that Greek scholar had access to the Old Testament. What I'm saying is, is that he had access to general revelation mm. and that general revelation at its highest pointed to the special revelation. Yep. Now, there are some people, Brent, that do suggest that maybe the Magi had some access to the prophecies by way of Daniel. Because remember, the Magi are the people who worked alongside Daniel. Uh, so again, there, there's possibility there, but I don't think we need to go there. Okay, let, let, let me just say something quickly here, because I told you that the classical Christian schools have really rehabilitated and reclaimed the pagan classics. That's ironic, because almost all of them are very strong Presbyterians and pretty darn strong Reformed Calvinists. Now, when I was growing up, the Calvinists in America would not be doing this, because unfortunately, and I don't know about your country, but I found when I was growing up, a lot of the Reformed people were misunderstanding total depravity and treating as if it were utter depravity. That is not what total depravity. Total depravity means that every part of our person has been subjected to the fall. So there is no part of us that has not been, if you will, dirtied and depraved by the fall. Right? So there, we can't save ourselves. But that's different than utter depravity. We still retain the imago Dei, the image of God, the sensus divinitatis, the divine sense that's put in us. And I think once we got over that, uh, we started to realize, wait a minute, we can learn wisdom from the pagan classics. Now, we luckily have the touchstone of Christ in the scripture to measure it, but it is possible by the power of special revelation for them to come upon truths that are true. It is not the truth with a capital T, but it is truths that are true that point the way. I, I don't know enough there. I, I know the, the, the great, um, uh, uh, what's his name, um, Dan, uh, Dan, Don Richardson, who wrote The Peace Child, and who in Papua New Guinea found what he called redemptive analogies in other cultures. I don't know. You know, those Maori are pretty violent, but I'll bet if you search the Maori carefully, oh, you yeah. will find some kind of redemptive story. I, I don't know the Maori well enough to, to, to explain that. Uh, I, I, I did see that really cool movie called uh, The Fifth Wave um, about the Aborigines. Um, but uh, but, uh, but uh, that, that was by Peter. Uh, what, what's the great Australian director? Peter Weir. Uh, I'm sorry we stole him from, from Australia. We had more money. Um, but the, uh, he, he did. He's done some really neat things about that. Uh, I don't think he's a Christian, but he still finds these mystical teachings amongst the uh, Aborigines of Australia that seem to point towards a higher understanding of things that maybe we can learn from as well. Yeah, thank you, Lewis Marcos. Uh, there we are. His new book from Classical Academic Press called Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. It is pronounced Lewis, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is. That's good. Thanks so much. 
Thank you for having me on. Great. And I hope you all enjoy the book. <laughs>